So, we are in Matthew chapter 5. Why are we looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and 7? To learn how to follow Jesus in a fallen world. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We talked about anger last week. This week we talk about lust. And we're going to start looking at this in verse 27. So while you're turning to Matthew 5 and we start in verse 27, let me pray. God, thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have as a church to worship you. We know that a big part of worshiping you is surrendering our lives um, to your vision for what, what life is. Many of us, we've tried the vision of the world. Um, we have um, bought into some lies, and we learn that, um, that the world can't keep its promises and its vision doesn't work. And so we've turned to you. We've come to you, and we've said, you know what? I need the kingdom of heaven to be in my heart and my mind. And you promise that as we come to you that you will give us that, that you have purchased that with your death and resurrection. You give us your Holy Spirit, and you give us your word. Many of us are still growing in this. We're still growing in kingdom life as we live out our life in culture. Um, and so I just pray you would meet us where we're at. Show us your love, but always show us your truth in love. And may I merely be a vessel by which that comes out. May the messenger not be remembered. May it be the message that reigns as uppermost and preeminent in our heart and in our mind. So I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what does Jesus have to say about lust? Let's look at it, verse 27. He says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The operative verse I just want to focus on initially is verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks... At a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The, the most insightful and important thing we have to say today is surrounding that word looks. Looks. The, the verb is a present participle. What that means is it, it's the ongoing looking at a woman or woman for a man or a person that you're attracted to, looking. It's not you see something once and you walk away. That's not the problem. The problem is an ongoing lifestyle of looking, an, a continuous cultivation of intentional looking. It is what I call a staring-driven life, a life driven by and looking for opportunities to look at a woman in this the way he says it, with the intention of lusting after that woman. So understand, first of all, what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not condemning natural attraction. He's not saying that if you see somebody who's attractive 
and you say, that person is attractive. That is not a sin. In fact, that's a part of life, isn't it? I mean, appreciating uh, creation, appreciating what, what, how God made you to appreciate beauty, that, that kind of thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's when we look at attractive people with the intention of abusing them in our mind, objectifying them, turning them only into a body, not a person, and using that to fantasize about our sexual life in our mind and our heart. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a staring-driven life. This is why Christians don't cover up their women from head to toe like other religions, right? Other religions say you can't see anybody at all. You have to cover them from head to toe. You can't see the opposite sex. You can't see, you can't see anything at all. Right? Jesus isn't talking about that. In fact, Jesus wants us to get to a place in our life where we can have healthy social interaction without covering each other up completely and, 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 and going out of the way. He wants our hearts to not be filled with lust. And what does he say? He urgently, just like with anger last week, He says that we urgently need to cut out a staring driven life. We must address, confront, and cut out a staring driven life. He says if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. That reminds me of my mom. She used to say to me, cut it out. Remember that? Anybody else get that? That was my mama. She was five foot tall. And then she'd get angry and she'd grow to about six foot ten. And she'd look at me and she'd say, cut it out. And Jesus, and, and by the way, what was, her, what was her intention in telling me that in various areas of my life? Love. And Jesus is lovingly coming to his disciples. And he says, if you want to live a kingdom life in the midst of culture, if you want to live in the world without the world living in you, if you want to follow me without falling down with everybody else in culture, then you must intentionally cut out a staring driven life. You must get rid of a lustful driven life. This is so relevant, isn't it? Because lust and staring driven life is ubiquitous in our culture. It's, it's all the way around us. I was looking at... <clears throat> Some terrifying statistics. It says that a quarter of a billion people by the year 2017 will be looking at pornography on their tablets and on their phones. That's up 30% from 2013. Imagine that. The increasing pile of lifestyle and bondage and strongholds in men and women's life when it comes to a staring driven life. It's everywhere. It's, it's, on, it's on our tablets. It's on our phones. It's on our computers. And then we're trained to accept through commercials and advertising that it's okay to objectify women's bodies and to look with the intention of lusting as opposed to just seeing each other as fellow human beings. We need this. This is a public health issue, isn't it? Utah, they're so freaked out by the statistics and the science that's going on with all of this uh, pornography and with all that's going on in culture, they have declared pornography a public health problem in their law. They have legislated without any kind of punishable action, by the way, they've just put it in the law. They just wanted to codify in their laws, this is a problem. This brings health problems. For you and I, in our church, and as Christians, we must then, if we're going to, listen, if we're going to cut out a staring-driven life, then we've got to talk about 
biblical sexuality. Now, here's the way you need to listen to the rest of the sermon. I want to be very clear. Jesus calls us to cut out a staring-driven life, and there's three ways that you need to hear this sermon and receive it. I want to help you listen to this sermon correctly, all right? Here's the way you need to listen to it. Number one, you need to listen to it with openness to revision of your perspective about sex. Some of you are, are going to need, after you hear this sermon, Jesus is calling you to revise the way you think about human sexuality. You need to be open to that. In fact, I would say for all of us, we have to constantly ask ourselves a question. What area of our life are we unwilling to let Jesus talk into? That's probably the very area where Jesus is going to change your life if you suddenly open that up. Some of you are going to be stubborn today, and you're going to try to deny this, or you're going to try to rationalize the way that this isn't really the way things should be, that, that this vision is impossible or improbable or whatever. And I would just ask you pastorally, open up your heart to a biblical vision of sexuality. It is better than the world's vision of sexuality, I promise you. Revise. Be open to revision. Here's the second way to listen to this sermon. Redeem. Some of you are in trouble right now, today. You're in trouble. You, you have the right perspective. You've got it right here, but it's not right here. And you might be at some level of bondage, or maybe you're starting to go down a road that you need to quickly cut out and turn around and get back to where Jesus wants you to go. I understand that. That's why we're talking about it, is to redeem our life, to let Jesus redeem and change us. Jesus came into the world not to just critique our life. He came into the world to transform our life. Amen? That means we come to church to admit our weaknesses, to admit our bondages, to come to, listen, to stop concealing what's going on in our life, to stop concealing what's going on in our lifestyle. For men, it might be you're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at. For women, it might be trying to be looked at in a way that you know you shouldn't be looked at. You, you see, you got to understand, you got to be redeemed and you got to turn around. You got to come back and listen to Jesus. You know what the truth is. But you got to give Jesus your heart today so that you can begin to change. You're going to have to determine, too, by the way, what level your bondage is. Because what you might be called to do might be drastic. As drastic as cutting off an arm, not literally. Taking out an eye, not literally. But you see that Jesus is saying there might be drastic action. I, I would encourage you to be open to that. Here's the third way to listen to this sermon is remember. Here's what you got to remember. Christians are the last line of defense for biblical sexuality in this world. In our society, there's nobody else. We are the last stewards of a biblical vision of sexuality in our society. Do all, are you all tracking with me? Amen. You're the last ones. You and I. comes down to you and I. We're the last ones who are going to teach our children in our home what God says about men and women and sex. We're the last one in our churches who are going to actually talk about it. In fact, the only time it's going to be talked about rightly anymore is at church. Amen? Remember that now. That's why we've got to be very specific. We've got to be very clear. We've got to regularly teach a biblical view of sexuality. Parents, you've got to hang on to this. We cannot be intimidated by the world anymore. We can't be intimidated by politically correct speech. 
You know what politically correct speech is? It's the language of Marxism. It's the language of gagging people to have real conversations about real issues. It will not come into our church. It won't come into our homes. And it's not going to come into our discipleship. Amen? But we've got to remember it in such a way. Now, this is, this is important. We've got to remember this in such a way to where not only we're not intimidated, but we can't learn it to be intimidating. We, we can't take our view and then do to the world what the world has done with us. What we have to do is learn it in such a way, live it out in such a way, talk about it in such a way to where it's persuasive, it's invitational, it's helpful even to those who might disagree. So we can't become hardened and intimidating in our attempt to not be intimidated by the world. And that's why we need Jesus, and we need the cross, and we need the gospel, and we need death and resurrection, and we need, we need a realization that we're all forgiven. We need a realization in, our, in the memory of our own sin and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Amen? Love and truth. Love and truth. That's what we're after. And that's how you need to hear this sermon. You either need to revise, maybe redeem, always remember. This is what we're doing. And so... We come to this and we go, okay, we need to cut out a staring driven life. That's what Jesus is telling us to do. So how do we do that? How do we effectively live out a lifestyle of cutting out a staring driven life? How do we uh, figuratively, can I get an amen, gouge out our eye? Not literally. I'm glad, aren't you glad we don't actually have to get buckets up here and just start lopping off arms? You know what I mean? Like, all right, Brother Bob, come up. It's your turn. I got the flint knife. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, I'm glad that's up. But figuratively, how can we live out a lifestyle of cutting out a staring-driven life? And here's the first thing you need. The first thing you need is a biblical vision. You need to be inspired again by God. You need to be inspired by His vision of what sex is to make sure that you're controlling and confronting your mind of lust. Jesus says, look at it carefully, in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. By the way, that's the seventh of the Ten Commandments, right? And that's found in, again, uh, Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20. That's where you can find the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Again, Jesus is not, he's not taking the Ten Commandments and saying, you know, I'm going to change the Ten Commandments. I'm going to take that Seventh Commandment of adultery, I'm going to get rid of it, and I'm going I'm to change it and replace that with this idea of lust. No, that's not what he's doing. What's he doing? He wants his disciples to know what is the heart of God. When God says to you and I, don't commit adultery within marriage, what is God's heart? God's heart for marriage is intimacy and love and faithfulness and, and covenant and, and enjoyment and pleasure. God wants marriages to be awesome. Can I get an amen? And committing adultery is the very thing that destroys an awesome, faithful, intimate, wonderful marriage. And so what Pharisees would do, and what religion always does, is it just says, well, just don't commit adultery and you'll have a great marriage. Of course, that's a lie, right? Because marriage isn't just, it's not like Sherry's going to congratulate me today when I get home from church and say, good job, you didn't commit adultery. Way to go, what a great husband. Sherry doesn't think I'm a, well, of course, Sherry thinks I'm a great husband, but, but she doesn't think, I, she doesn't, 
determine greatness by not cheating on her. She determines greatness by having a heart of intimacy with her, by loving her, by being emotionally available, by saying to her both in my actions, in my words, in my demeanor, my body belongs to you, my soul belongs to you, my heart belongs to you, and consequently, the same thing from her to me, right? And that's why Jesus is saying, listen, man, you guys are missing the heart of God. (laughs) The heart of God is that our heart would not be lusting after other people. Our heart would be loving the spouse that God gives to us. That is the spirit and the intent of the seventh commandment. That means that you and I have to return to, and especially now in our culture where we're biblically illiterate now, we don't even know what God says about marriage, we've got to return to the vision of God and marriage and sexuality. So let me give you a slew of passages. I'm going to read quite a bit of uh, Bible here this morning. Why? Because we've got to be educated. We've got to be clear. Uh, I've got for you, and you can turn in your Bibles or it'll be up on the screen, it's up to you, uh, Genesis chapter 2. Where did sex originate? Sex originated in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Name of the book Genesis, it means origins. The origin of sex is the same origin as all of creation from birds and bees and trees and water, man and woman, and sex. And here it is, Genesis 2 verse 23, it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, there you have the first love poem in the history of mankind. That's a poem. He quotes that to his wife. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is foundational to all of sexuality, biblically. It happens before the fall of Adam and Eve. It's original to creation. And it defines for us what biblical sexuality is. What is biblical sexuality? It is a man and a woman in the context of marriage. The vision of God is fidelity within marriage and abstinence outside of marriage. That is the biblical vision of of sex and marriage. Man and woman, in the context of marriage, fidelity within marriage, abstinence without. You see that in verse 25. Not only are they one flesh, but they're naked and they're not ashamed. There's the heart of God. There's the vision. Intimacy, poetry, by the way. Already, and I'm about to go to Song of Solomon, so I'm stalling right now. Can I get an amen? By the way, we see that sex is not only physical in this vision. It's emotional. It's spiritual. You know what culture says? It's just physical. It's, you know, sex is is just physical. It's just, you want food? You want sex. It's just a physical need. It's a physical thing. No, no, no. It's not only physical. It's physical plus That's why, I mean, you can have safe sex outside of marriage and not get physical disease. But let me tell you something. You cannot avoid the emotional disease, the spiritual disease of breaking this vision. There is a complete holistic personhood that's happening in the confines of marriage and in sex. And anything that breaks that 
He's going against the vision and bringing harm to our lives. Now, when it says there in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, many people want to know exactly what that means. Some have said, we've been trying to get back to that verse since the fall. Can I get an amen? And so the commentary on this is Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, which is this wonderful poem of Eros love, of intimate and physical love, is a commentary on that one verse in verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2. And you could read all of Song of Solomon and see the joy and the celebration of the vision of marital physical intimacy. I'll give you a taste of it in a poem that Solomon reads or sings over his wife. Song of Solomon chapter 7 and verse 1. It'll make you blush. He says to his bride, how beautiful. By the way, guys, this is some hints. This is really helpful, practical Things you can say to your brides. I'm just trying to help you, brothers. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. All right. The work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. You might not want to use that line anymore. I... (laughs) The, the heap of wheat, uh, the fluffy, back then that was cool. I, I don't know if that's going to work in a... Uh, you're, oh my gosh. Somebody's going to pass out. All right, thank you. Thank you for the help. I love the support. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. We'll move on. Verse 4. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools of Heshbon, the gate of Bath, Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. I mean, this is great stuff. And why would I read that? And by the way, I was going to have the part where she says something similar to him about legs of gold. You know, similar things that Sherry says to me all the time. But <laughs> we won't go there. But, but here's the thing. Why, why am I saying this? Here's the thing. God does not think that sex is gross. Can I get an amen? God is not prude. God is not like, oh my gosh, I'm so, I don't want to ever talk about sex. I just can't. God created it, and it is a wonderful gift from him. It's an emotional, spiritual, physical gift and vision from God. And when it is practiced in the confines of marital happiness and covenant fidelity, it is a wonderful, wonderful gift from God. And the world, oh, you know, they're all prude, all those Christians and people who believe in God. I mean, there are expressions of Christianity that are prude. They barely ever talk about it because they're so nervous about talking about it. Now, here at Crosspoint, we're talking about it. Can I get an amen? And the reason why we're talking about it is because God created it, and he has a whole book in the Bible called Song of Solomon that celebrates this sex. That's why you're like, well, that's Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Didn't it change? Didn't they get more strict? No, not at all. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
Paul addresses problems of sexuality in the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth is very similar to America. There was ubiquitous sexual opportunities, ubiquitous opportunities for lust. Uh, there was temple prostitution. There was incest. There was all kinds of license when it came to that in culture. And Paul is trying to help Christians walk and, and navigate the maze of these bondages, the, navigate these, these well-worn paths to destruction. And here he says to married people and in question about sex, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, at that point in time, we're thinking, oh, what, to just to procreate, just to have, ba-? like, that's like Christians just think that sex is just to have babies. Is that, is that the thing? Is that what you Christians believe? No, not at all. In fact, watch. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, automatically, what's the gospel doing? It's saying, your body doesn't even belong to you, man. Your body belongs to, to your wife. And ladies, wives, your, your body doesn't belong to you to, to show off to other men or anything like that. Your, your body belongs to your husband. Verse 5. Watch this. All Christian husbands love this verse. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. A limited time. Limited time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What's he telling married couples to do? This is the counsel of Paul in the church from the platform. He's saying you need to enjoy within your marriage sex with each other, which tells us that God is not prude. In fact, he encourages intimacy, physical joy, and only in season. I mean, like, like if you're fasting, right? Like a short season of fasting and prayer, maybe... You forbid sex within marriage, but outside of that, enjoy it. Use it so you won't be tempted by Satan. And if you're young and you're single and you're dating and you're trying to figure out, how am I going to overcome this passion? Paul's like, either get married or go find your spouse, but don't act like that this dating without being married and having sex is okay, because it's not. you got to get married. Again, one more verse. This is God's vision. May God bless us with being inspired by it. Hebrews 13. Do you need to revise your view of sex? Do you need to redeem your view of sex? Do you you need to remember today that we are the stewards of this vision? Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Everybody say all. Not some. Not some. May marriage be held... And honor among all. Marriage is no longer honored. And now, even in, the, even in our churches, some of our churches don't even honor it. They don't even care anymore about this idea. But let it be held in honor and all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is God's vision. A man and a woman in the context of marriage. Fidelity within, abstinence without. This is God's vision. And compare this vision 
to the vision outside of a gospel kingdom mindset that Jesus is giving to us in the Sermon on the Mount. What is sex to culture? Culture says sex is God. Culture says that sex is God. It determines how we view ourselves. It determines, it determines our very identity. And we worship at the altar of this God of sex. What is idolatry? Idolatry is going to something else to do for you what only God can do. Idolatry is when something replaces God in our mind, in our heart, in our affections, in our culture. We have made sex God. It sells shampoo. It sells razors. It sells appeal to our bodies. It's God. That's why pornography is a $3 billion business in culture because everybody is going to that church and they're worshiping at the shrine. That's why my daughters are trying to be taught by all of the advertisement that wearing skim clothing to have other men lusting after them is the essence of beauty because sex is a God. And let me tell you something. What is idolatry? It's taking good things, making them God, and then those good things that become idols in our life destroy us. Your idols will destroy you. Whatever you choose to be your functional savior and take the place of God will destroy you. It will defeat you. And Jesus is inviting you to get it off the idol, to get it off the throne, and replace it with the true God through Jesus Christ. Because sex, sex is a great servant in marriage. It's a bad master in culture. Amen. Culture says sex is God. What's religion say about sex? Religion says sex is gross. Religion says sex is not clean. There's a reason why over the centuries, Catholic theology continued to add on to the doctrine of Mary over and over again. Every century, she became more of a virgin, the perpetual virgin, because all of, the, all of theologians, and, and in Christian history, theologians, some good even, Augustine. Augustine talked about sex like it, like it was gross, like it was something that was to be avoided. Religion will say sex is only good for procreation. Don't ever talk about it. Don't ever enjoy it. Don't ever kind of go down that road. We're just not going to talk about that. And that's led to as much defeat, listen, as much defeat in people's lives as anything culture has thrown at people. Because that's led to unnecessary suppression. It's led to unnecessary prudeness. And it's led to a lack of conversation in our homes and in our churches. And it's left us blind to what Satan brings into our life. Sex is not gross. Sex is not a God. Sex is a gift to be enjoyed. That's the vision of God. And that vision works. That vision works. And so once we have that vision, what are we going to do? We come back to Matthew chapter 5. Like, how can I cut out a staring-driven life? Well, you need to be inspired by the vision that God has. You need to be inspired again. God is inspiring. God is revelation. Jesus is the Word of God. And He brings a great vision. And so once we get the vision in our hearts, then we're like, man, i got to take action. I need action. Now, look at what he says again. I, I know this is redundant, but I, I just want you to see it. Verse 29, I want you to lay your eyes on Matthew 5, verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Note that Jesus is not prescribing Band-Aids. He is prescribing amputation. He's saying this is so important that you need to, even if it's painful, you need to do what is necessary to cut out a staring-driven life. This vision is too important. God and his glory and our enjoyment of human relationships, our social interactions, our, our love of neighbor, our love of God, this is all way too important. And so you need to take drastic action and not treat this like a little cut when you kind of fell on your bike. This is like, I've got cancer and something's got to be cut out of my life. And so let me invite you once again, let me give you four R words to take action, all right? To take action. Number one, I want to return to the idea of the action of revise. Do you need to revise your view of sex? That's tough. That's, that's tough. I mean, if, you, if you've been living one way and you've been thinking one way for forever, for as long as you can remember, that's like the most common idea is, is sex and, 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 and the way you've thought about sex. And here it is. You're being confronted with this painful reality. Oh, my gosh, like I'm not on the Jesus game plan. And it's painful to revise, isn't it? It kind of feels like you're cutting off your right arm or, or you're about to cut out your eye. But Jesus says it's better to, to cut out this one small part of your life and save your soul. Save your whole body. What do you need to revise? Here's the, the critique against sexual fidelity and, and biblical sexuality. What are the things that we need to cut out? Number one, the Bible says that adultery is antithetical to God's biblical vision. Adultery. We saw that in the seventh command. We see that in this context. What's another thing that we need to advise? There's another word. That kind of goes with adultery, but it's been used also in different contexts in the Bible. It's called fornication. What is fornication? It's the same thing as adultery. However, it can include when you have sex before marriage. So adultery is kind of when you cheat on your wife or your husband. Fornication is just when you have sex before you get married. Our culture calls fornication dating, right? This is not dating. It's fornication, and, 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 and Jesus comes into our life, and he saves us, and he dies for our sins, and he, he defeats death, and he, and he gives us the power and the resources for a new life, and one of the first things that he addresses in our life, I know he addressed it in my life, is you've got to cut out fornication from your life. You have to save the rest of your body and soul and sexual intimate relations for your wife. He said that to me at 17 years old, which meant I hid in a corner for the rest of my high school career, right? Do you need to revise fornication? Here's the other deviant form against the biblical view of, of sexuality, and that's homosexuality. The Bible says that homosexuality is antithetical to the biblical view that God has for sexuality. Old Testament, New Testament, Leviticus, Romans chapter 1. First and Second Corinthians brings up homosexuality several times, and the book of Revelation brings up homosexuality as one of the manifestations of sexual immorality that God takes very serious, and it's worth judgment. Now, you know, this is such a sensitive issue. This is part of those 
kind of, that kind of falls in the realm of you're not supposed to speak against this anymore in our culture and our society. And one of the things that we have to say about homosexuality in response to kind of all the conversation that's happening is I want you to know nobody here is going to heaven because they're heterosexual. Can I get an amen? If you're not homosexual, that doesn't mean God's like, yeah, you can come into the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're heterosexual. Congratulations. We are justified by faith alone, and we are all forgiven sinners. However, one of the things that, that's, that's happening is we begin, to, we, we begin to rationalize, justify. And what we say is we say, you know, all sin is the same. I mean, God hates all sin, and, and sin is sin. And, and any sin, whether you steal something or, 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 whether, or whether you lie or gossip or, or anything, we're all sinners, and so all sin is the same before God. And there's truth to that. In fact, original sin alone is enough to separate us from God, and any sin against God separates us from fellowship with God. It doesn't matter how big or how small, it all looks the same in terms of our position with Him. And the way we're forgiven and our position with Him is restored is coming to Jesus and getting forgiveness for all of our sin. However, God outlines in the Bible not only the the vertical value of sin, but the horizontal value of sin. Okay, are you all tracking with me? And the horizontal value of sin changes. Not all sin is the same when it comes to human relationships. Let me give you an example. If I come and I murder one of your family members, you're going to go, that is really bad, right? That's like a lot worse than if I come and steal a stick of gum from you, right? I mean, if I come and steal a stick of gum from you, you're going to say, oh, I mean, he's a pastor. He kind of should you know, be polite and ask for permission. I mean, you know. <laughs> but if I kill a family member, you're like, needs to go to jail. Needs to go before the judge. That's serious. Took a family member. See, horizontally, there's different values with sin. And here's what the Bible says about sexual sin, including homosexuality. God considers the value and the problem of that sin horizontally in human relationships to be very serious. It's within the Ten Commandments, according to the lust principle here. Whenever the Bible talks about homosexual or any sexual immorality, it takes it to a different level. Why? Why is that? Because it destroys relationships at a different level than other sins do. It destroys souls. It destroys emotions. It destroys bodies at a level that is completely different than just other smaller sins. So you see that sexual sin, including homosexuality, is far more serious than other sins in terms of human relationships. That is why Jesus says you've got to get rid of it. You've got to to repent from this vision that would allow that because it's hurting people's lives. You're like, well, is it any worse than adultery? No. But adultery is not any worse than lust or fornication. I would consider those equal, but sexual immorality needs to be revised and needs to be revised immediately. I mean, if you're still in sticks of gum, all right, we'll give you a couple weeks to work on that. You know what I mean? Just ask politely next time. But if you're struggling with sexual sin, today is the day of salvation. Cut it out. Cut it out. Lovingly, Jesus is saying, cut it out. Here's the second R word. So not only revise, but restrain. Restrain. Culture says that we should surrender to all of our desires. If you have a desire, fulfill it. You want to do it? Go do it. 
Obviously, if you have a desire, then it means it must be right. If it feels right, if it feels like love, if it feels like intimacy, if it feels like something that's good, you should just kind of, you should just kind of give into it because that's a desire of your own life. It's your life. You live your life the way you want to live your life. Go do what you want to do. And yet the Bible tells us that the secret to life is restraint. And we were reading, this is so great. I love this. I, I've been studying mere Christianity. Look at how old that copy is, by the way, by C.S. Lewis. And... Um, We've been studying it together, a few, few guys from the church, every other Saturday, and I'd forgotten that it was this weekend, and Sherry said to me, at like at 10.30 on Friday night, hey, do you have Band of Brothers tomorrow? And I'm like, oh, no, I haven't read my book, and I didn't even know what chapters I was supposed to read, and guess what chapter we covered with Band of Brothers? C.S. Lewis talking about sexual morality. Can you believe that? I was like, dude, I'm going to get some stuff to steal for my sermon. And I did. Listen to what he says, though, about uh, restraint and, and sexuality. He says uh, in, in, his, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, in my old, old copy that I stole from my dad years ago, page 92, he says that culture, the lie consists in suggestion, in the suggestion that any sexual act to which you are tempted at the moment is also healthy and normal. Now this, on any, conce- on any conceivable view, and quite, this is uh, quite apart from Christianity, must be nonsense, that is, giving in to our desires. Surrender to all our desires obviously leads to impotence, disease, jealousies, lies, concealment, and everything that is the reverse of health, good humor, and frankness. Now watch this, this is the line. For any happiness, even in this world, quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. So the claim made by every desire when it is strong to be healthy and reasonable counts for nothing. Now, isn't that true in any area of your life? If you want to enjoy life, you have to practice restraint. And I got to tell you, I'm so glad I got Sherry and I got four daughters and I got a home and I got a church and I got friends because I just imagine if I didn't have all of those things and if I had none of those things, I might not practice any restraint at all and I'd be living in a corner uh, with, you know, Taco Bell bags surrounding me. And But for me to be happy, restraint is necessary. You know, culture's not going to tell you that anymore. They're not going to say to you, you know, it's good to restrain your desires. It's good to keep them in check and not follow every whim, not follow everything that you want to do, but to evaluate those desires and only fulfill the ones that God is calling you to fulfill. You know, for some of you, maybe you've been going down a path towards a a life of lust. And maybe the only thing you need to hear today to help you kind of come back to your senses is just hear the preacher say, stop. Restrain yourself. When you're walking and you see somebody attractive and your heart says, I'm going to look a second time for the purpose of capturing an image that I can take with me, don't look twice. Restrain yourself. When you're, when you're tempted as a woman to dress thinly clad, to turn heads, to help men take that second look, don't do it. Restrain yourself. Following Jesus, seeking the Holy Spirit, praying, coming into the community is often asking God, help me to restrain myself. 
I've got to move on, but we need to take action, revise, restrain. Here's the third thing, remove. Jesus says remove. And I've got to tell you that here's the truth. The truth is, is that some of you might have addiction. And what they're finding out about, especially like pornography and a lustful life, is that a lustful life, when given rain, and when going down, it reaches a certain point to where its effects on the brain and the body are similar to heroin addiction. And it's an increasing drug. And you're looking at images, and now you need new images to look at because those earlier images aren't good enough anymore. You need new levels of perverse ideas to stimulate this lust in your life. And here's the thing. Statistics are showing that in the church, outside of the church, Christians, non-Christian, this is becoming more and more of a problem. Counselors are receiving help. There's treatment centers that are now building up whole ministries to help, especially men, get out of this. And I would be remiss in the context of cutting out a stirring-driven life if I didn't invite anybody here to seek help if you need help. Get the counseling. Go talk to the pastor. Go make sure you're doing what needs to be done. There's resources out there to help you cut off your arm, get rid of the eye, so you can save your soul and your life and your relationships and your marriage or the potential of marriage. There is help for you. And there's a couple websites I want to give to you. Uh, www.covenanteyes.com. That also gives all of us good educational uh, information. There's a a report I printed out this week is like this thick on statistics, and it is a sobering analysis of what's going on. And by the way, parents, what's going on with teens and tablets and phones and girls and boys and Facebook and Tumblr and Instagram and all of these social media outlets that they're able to conceal and hide and go and run and hide, parents, get educated. Can I get an amen? Do not neglect your duty as a parent. Make sure you know they're not old enough to figure out what they're supposed to do. Culture says, well, they can be whatever they want to be. If they feel, if little Bobby feels like being somebody else, well, then little Bobby can go do that. No, no, no. God gives kids parents for a reason. They need help. And they need protection. And you got to know what they're looking at. I know what my girls are looking at. Can I get an amen? This stuff is real, man. This is like... This is the epidemic that nobody wants to talk about that is happening. It is ubiquitous. It is omnipresent. It's everywhere. And if you need to get help, then get help. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's constantly inviting us to seek out help. He says strength is admitting weakness. Strength is not acting like you're strong when you're not. It's okay. That's why we're here. We're all broken in different ways. And we seek the help we need to get Go to CovenantEyes.com, talk to a counselor, talk to a pastor. I can guide you uh, confidentially to the places you need to go to get the help you need. If you're in bondage, remove it, remove it, remove it. Take out the eye, take off the arm. Here's the final thing. Take action. Renew your relationships, all right? This is what helps you. Renew your relationships. Your relationship to God, he'll take you just as you are. He, He ain't. It's not like God's like, you know, figure out the lust thing and then come talk to me. No, no, no. He just says, let's start a relationship. Let's get this thing rolling. And then if you have a wife or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or, or whatever, renew intimacy in that relationship the right way. If you're married, go out on dates, man. Enjoy, enjoy each other. 
Enjoy each other emotionally and spiritually and physically. Worship together. Sing God together. Determine, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My girl said, Daddy, what would you say at, at, your, at your rehearsal dinner before you married Mommy? And I said, I read from the book of Joshua chapter 24. And I looked at everybody and I said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Renew your relationships, renew those most important priorities that money cannot buy, those intimacies and those relationships that will bring the fulfillment that God made you to have. Take action, take action. And the final thing, I've got to do this last one quickly, but you guys have heard me preach enough to know what I'm going to say here, but vision, action, the third thing you need is grace, grace. You know, I have to say this, I got to tell you. I debated whether I was going to say this. I'll let you all debate this in life group. If you all do the life group discussion on this one, I'd like to be a fly in that wall. But but what I thought about is there's grace, even in what Jesus is saying. And you know where the grace is in this when he says, if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And that word if, you could circle that word if, and you know what? There's grace in that word. Because here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, if you already screwed up, it's too late for you. He talks about it after the fact. After we've already messed it all up. After we've totally tripped all over ourselves, he picks us up and he says, now I'm going to heal you. And by the way, let me further add this, that he tells us to cut off the arm, cut off the eye. But unlike other religious leaders throughout the history, he doesn't tell us to emasculate ourselves. Can I get an amen? Jesus is saying, you know what? If you'll just give me your eye, I'll give you, some, I'll give you a new vision in its place. If you'll give me your arm... I'll become your right arm. I came to die for sinners. I came as a physician to heal the sick. And if you'll just give me your disease, I'll save you from hell. I will save you from hell. I'll save you from the hell you'll experience on this earth if you keep going down this path. And I'll save you from eternal hell by dying for your sins and defeating death. I will give you grace. I will give you forgiveness. And I get it that none of you are going to ever be perfect when it comes to lust. There's nobody here who's ever going to wake up one day and say, man, I got that all figured out. He says, keep coming back. Keep coming and experience forgiveness and grace. Keep coming back to the table of my body and my blood. Keep coming back to the memory of your forgiveness and the security of your acceptance before God by grace and not by works. And as you walk in that grace, as you keep getting up in forgiveness, I will grow you and mature you and you will slowly become to develop into the man of God and the daughter of God that you were meant to be. Grace. You got to have grace. Because you will fall on some level. You're going to fall. Again, I'll close it out with this quote from this this book. I don't even know why I preach anymore. I should just give you this book and say, let Marshall lead you in singing. And it's so good. Anyways, he says this, page 93. C.S. Lewis says, you may indeed be sure that perfect chastity, that's the biblical vision of Fidelity and abstinence, that perfect chastity, like perfect charity, will not be attained by any merely human efforts. You must ask for God's help. 
Even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness. Pick yourself up and try again. Very often, what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying. For however important chastity or courage or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, this process trains us in habits of the soul, which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend upon God. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven." The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. Let us pray.